It's Monday, May 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's called Munchausen by Internet, the condition of faking illness online. It's a form of factitious disorder, a mental disorder where people fake illness or actually make themselves sick to get sympathy and attention. But one place online that experiences this at higher rates is in the cancer community. People in online cancer support groups are routinely outed as healthy. It seems almost impossible to think that someone could lie about such a serious illness, but it happens a lot, and those that offered their love, sympathy, and support often feel betrayed. Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for why the internet has a cancer-faking problem. Next, let's check in on how the crowded field of Democratic hopefuls for president is doing. Coming in at 21 candidates, the newspaper headlines and social media mentions are concentrated on just a handful of contenders. The top four getting all the love are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Kamala Harris. There's still plenty of time for the others to make a name for themselves, and the first debate isn't until the end of June. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for how the Dems are doing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Cancer is really just seen as the boogeyman when it comes to the medical world. Like It's like the word that you don't want to hear when you go into a doctor's surgery or if you have anything wrong with you. You know, you sort of people think, you know, like, oh, at least it's not cancer. Joining us now is Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about this notion of Munchausen by Internet. It's the condition of faking illness online. It's a, a form of the uh, factitious disorder, which is the disorder formerly known as Munchausen syndrome, where people are faking illnesses. Sometimes they actually make themselves sick for sympathy and attention. And one place in particular online where this is really kind of becoming a problem more and more are with cancer support groups. The internet has this big cancer faking problem. So tell us a little bit more about this, Rasheen. I discovered this problem, I guess, firsthand. Last year, I was going through cancer treatment myself, so I was a member of this Facebook support group. And one day there was this post from another member who said, oh, there's this lady, Marissa Marshand, and she was presenting as someone who was terminally ill and was going to die but it turned out that she was completely healthy and she'd been arrested and it was just it was just quite shocking to me that this existed it was weird because it had been sort of cross-posted over these different Facebook groups and a lot of women were commenting saying oh you know this is the third time this has happened in my cancer journey or like this is so sick and shocking so it seemed like although it was shocking to me it was actually quite common it happened quite a lot so it was something that I wanted to find out more about and to find out why these people did it especially because a lot of the people who were posting they were saying things like oh you know it's sick why would they do this saying that they were you know heartless or freaks or whatever but you know like that that doesn't really explain it either like there is different motivations for these people especially when you know you're not doing it as like a fundraiser you're not doing it for fraud for financial fraud you're doing it for attention so I just really wanted to delve into that and, and find out more about why they did it which is as you mentioned linked to this issue of monetizing by internet. Let's uh, start with that uh, example you gave. You you mentioned Marissa Marchand and tell that part of the story as an example for how this stuff happens. She joined one of these groups. She said she was terminally ill and she was a grieving single mom. She even posted pictures of, of herself bald from chemotherapy. She was wearing an IV drip in some of these pictures. 
and instantly the outpouring of support and love from these groups, because that's what these groups are all about. They're made for support to help each other. And people are giving her sympathy, money, gifts, wigs to help since she had no hair, things like that. And you mentioned that she got arrested. There was a point in the group where she stopped posting is because she got arrested because she got found out for lying about this whole stuff. She was defrauding some GoFundMe pages. Yeah. Obviously, when someone stops posting in a group that's for cancer survivors, people going through cancer treatment, you assume the worst, especially when they have said, oh, you know, my diagnosis is now terminal. I don't have any treatment options left. And these were groups that were really, really engaged with their members' lives, like especially people like Marissa, who, who posted, who was really active. Stephanie, who I spoke to, who, who was the admin of that particular group, you know, she organised things like vigils for women who were at the end of their life and didn't have anyone there with them. So, you know, it's really, really dedicated to helping people and to providing this sort of community. So when Marissa stopped posting, Stephanie took it upon herself to reach out to her family just to confirm that she, well, they assumed that she died so that then they could say, the funeral's being held here. This is where you can pay your respects. This, this is who you can send your cards to. And she found out that Marissa was, in fact, healthy, had been arrested for fraud of the GoFundMe, as you mentioned. And that's when she sort of reported back to the group and everything unraveled from there. What are the emotions that go through this? Because on the outside, people that are not part of these communities or these groups, you hear about a story about this and you just think these must be some of the most evil people in the world. You know, how could you fake such a serious illness and try to get away with it just for sympathy? Mm -hmm. But for people that are in these groups that are going through their own struggles with cancer or family members that are going with it, how are they reacting when these people get outed? I think that the reaction is similar, but so much more visceral because, as you said, like these are people who are dealing with these sort of things every day. You know, when I saw that, that post, I was dealing with that every day. I was dealing with hair loss and nausea and all the other, you know, just the uncertainty of knowing whether or not you're going to be okay. So it's the same kind of disgust and anger and just disbelief that you have when you read a story about someone pretending they have cancer when they're actually healthy but on a much huger scale like these people are so upset about this and especially because in the case of Marissa and other people in these Facebook support groups they feel like they're friends with this person they feel like they know them and they've reached out they've given them money or as you mentioned wigs or just emotional support so there's a huge sense of betrayal that you've given your time and money and emotional support to someone who just lied to your face essentially why do people lie about cancer in particular what makes this particular illness i hate to say this way popular but popular for these people Mm -hmm. to to try to take advantage of well it's interesting because Munchausen syndrome factitious disorder in the real world it kind of takes on any illness you know you can pretend to have anything when you have this but on the internet it seems to be mostly cancer and I think that's because cancer is really just seen as the boogeyman when it comes to the medical world like it's like the word that you don't want to hear when you go into a doctor's surgery or if you have anything wrong with you you know you sort of people think you know like oh at least it's not cancer so I think because cancer is seen as the worst of the worst people know that you're going to get the most attention for this and cancer is because it's so prevalent because everyone knows someone who's had cancer or they've had cancer themselves there's so much support online for it because people want to help so they want to find more information so there's a huge audience for these people there's a huge audience for them to get support and attention in saying they have cancer and also because cancer is so well known it's quite easy 
in a way to pretend that you have it, especially if you have seen someone else suffer with it. You right. you know, like like Marissa knew that, you know, if you have no hair, people are going to assume you have cancer. If you're on a drip in the hospital and you say you're having chemo, then why would you lie about that? It's such an extreme, extreme thing to lie about that people sort of take you at face value. Yeah, and you can draw it out for a long time too because uh, exactly, a lot of the yeah. symptoms don't always present themselves immediately. So when you're in these groups and online communities, what does a group do when they suspect that somebody might be lying when they, you know, things just aren't adding up? How do they go about finding the truth out about some of these people? It's a really traumatic experience when evidence does present itself that people are lying because, as I said, like these groups exist solely for the purpose of giving people support. So you want to take people at face value and you want to believe the best of them. So when it seems that things maybe aren't adding up, it does take several members going to the admin and saying, you know, like, oh, they've said this, they've said this, something isn't right here. And in the case of Marissa, the admin took it upon herself to contact other family members. And that's happened in other cases too, that they've gone to a sister or a husband and said, your wife, your sister, your friend is telling us all this stuff. Is it true? And quite often they'll say, no, right. it's a lie. And one of the um, things that happens too is uh, some of these people will often post on more than one group. They don't necessarily just mm-hmm. pick the one. Uh, so they're kind of, whether it's an alias or they use the same names a lot of times, some people will often cross post in other groups to try to say, hey, do this person claiming to do this as well. So there's this little bit of detective work that has to go through it to try to find these people. Yeah, you sort of have to become an amateur detective yourself and then take on the burden of going through all these other communities that this person has been in and lied to and taking on the responsibility of telling all those other people that they've come in connection with that they were wasting your time, basically. So it's, it's a huge burden that people take upon themselves to do this and to make sure that the people in those groups are telling the truth, basically. What do health experts and psychologists say about why people do this? I mean, is it just strictly for the sympathy and the attention? It's such an unknown, as it were, and in like psychiatry circles. Like I spoke to Dr. Mark Feldman, who was the person who discovered or like coined the term Munchausen by Internet back in 2000. And he said, you know, there's there's no study that shows how widespread this is because of the nature of the Internet. Like the Internet is just so vast that it's impossible to get a real handle on why people do this or how many people do it. But I, I think personally, it's like it's very linked to social media and how you can get huge amounts of sympathy for posting about bad things that happen to you. Like even I know from personal experience when I posted about finishing chemo or going into the hospital, people are very quick to reach out and say, you know, I'm here for you, I support you. And if you have this mental disorder, like that can be incredibly addictive to know that you then have that never-ending support if you're ill. The last thing I just wanted to ask you, you did mention that you went through cancer treatments and in your article you mentioned that it was the hardest thing you've ever done, but it was also the time in your life when you had the most support. How has your journey gone and, and where are you now? So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in February last year and like as I said in the piece I was 26 I didn't have any history of it in my family so it was a real shock and I turned to online to get that support which is why I discovered this issue but in terms of like my own journey last year I had whole heaps of treatment so I had chemotherapy and surgery and radiotherapy and then towards the end of last year I found out that I had NED which is basically like cancer speak for no evidence of disease in your body which is great news Um, and I finished active treatment now so I'm just sort of uh, you know you have to kind of keep taking tablets and keep an eye on it for five years but you know touch wood everything's looking much better than it did last year which is great news yeah that's great news and we wish you nothing but continued health 
Roisin Lanigan, contributor to The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I think if you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. I think I can feel safe to say that no matter who the candidate is, we are all going to come together to defeat the most dangerous president in modern American history, and that is Donald Trump. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. There's never any shortage of President Trump news, but what I wanted to do today was take a check in with our Democratic presidential hopefuls. There are 21 people running to be the Democratic nominee. Uh, Joe Biden was just at a an event the other day, and he said that uh, he thinks that the field will shrink rapidly early next year, that there's a lot of people there, but that everybody's going to get winnowed out pretty quickly. There was a new study done for Politico that actually said that there's top four Democrats that are dominating the 2020 media primary. Basically, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are dominating the, all the news coverage, whether it's uh, social media or traditional news. Tell us how these top four people are kind of faring so far. Those four have really started to solidify their support. And just to note, before uh, Biden's wish of the field winnowing comes true, it looks like this week it's going to grow by one more. We expect Montana Governor Steve Bullock to get in in short order. We see Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris really starting to dominate the conversation. Elizabeth Warren rolling out trust uh, reams and reams of policy positions, trying to position herself as the candidate with a plan. Kamala Harris getting some traction in the South among other women voters. And then Biden, there was some thought that when he came into the race that he would see his numbers fall, that once he became a candidate, people would be a little bit more skeptical. We don't see that. Instead, he got a little bit of a bump off of his entry and is really swinging through the country. And uh, to give you a little sort of the inside of the background of these campaigns, the behind the scenes that you don't see, is the most organized of all of the candidates at this point. They're letting reporters into his fundraisers using a system called a pool, which means they've organized to the point where we're getting pool reports, which is something we we don't only see candidates doing until almost they're the nominee. There was a, another poll that was done that basically, I mean, Joe Biden is the the front runner right now, but they said about 30% of his supporters would choose Bernie Sanders as their second choice. Uh, let's say if he didn't get the nomination, those two guys still do seem to be the top front runners. Have you seen anybody really come out with anything to make them stand out just yet? You know, I think we see Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail doing better than most expected her to do. She really does resonate with voters when she's at campaign events or at events where it's got a lot of undecided people in the Democratic Party. Amy Klobuchar had her Fox News town hall last week. She had a couple of moments there. They're they're both candidates I would be watching closely as we get closer to that June debate. Let's focus a little bit on Amy Klobuchar, actually, because for her part, she is very much focusing on the electability. She's arguing that she's the most electable in November 2020, and she hasn't moved to the left as a lot of the other people in in the Democratic field have. And I mean, I, I, I constantly keep thinking ahead. So I feel like that's an important thing, because when you get to the general election, we know how divided the country is. If you have a really far left candidate, I mean, they're going to have a tough road 
running against a president who has a really good record with the economy right now. Maybe not on all the issues, but at least the economy, he's doing great. So if you have a far left person running, it's going to be a tough road at that point. You know, there are two schools of thought. The first school of thought is uh, run the most liberal candidate you can to get the liberal voters the most excited, since we know the most conservative voters are very excited about Donald Trump, and hope that more of your folks show up and that the moderates sort of break 50-50. The other school of thought, and this is the Biden, Amy Klobuchar school of thought, is when those people in the middle, when independents, when maybe some, some Republicans who voted for Trump and now are just sort of exhausted by the chaos. And that's what Klobuchar is trying to argue, that she wins Republicans and moderates in her home state of Minnesota, that she wins in very rural places in her state, that she can appeal to working class voters, it's an argument that is going to be compelling when when voters look at the at the general election. We see polls out last week again. Monmouth had one that said voters are overwhelmingly citing electability as their most important issue in a candidate, not actual policy positions. And Amy Klobuchar, who does very well in a small setting, she's basically got a candidacy built for places like Iowa, is is trying to capitalize on that. She crossed that media line and did that Fox News town hall that you mentioned. How did she do there? She fared very well there. There was lots of praise for her answers. And like you said, she didn't try to go outside of her ideology and become more liberal. She got asked about being a progressive. And she said, look, progressive requires progress. She said she supports universal health care, but she doesn't think they can get there. So they think she thinks what should happen instead of sort of a Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, no more private health insurance. It's creating a system where people can buy into Medicare if they want or keep their private insurance that they already have. One of the other interesting that's happening on another presidential campaign is that of Bernie Sanders. It's going to be a first for a presidential campaign where they actually unionize the campaign workers. The staff is going to get uh, 20 days off per year. They're going to have uh, breaks throughout the day, mandatory time off between really long shifts. Hourly employees are going to receive overtime pay. I mean, it's a big test because there's a lot of stuff that goes into these presidential campaigns, super long hours, shoestring budgets these grueling conditions. Everybody's heard some really crazy war stories. How is that going to play out for Bernie Sanders? Yeah, you're right. Presidential campaigns are very taxing. Uh, working for them, covering them, as someone has covered a number of them. It, it, Bernie Sanders has the money. He's not having a hard time raising money. He is not dependent or, or going to be dependent on buying expensive television ads so people know his name. He's quite well known at this point. That does offer him the ability to pay his staff more and to have agreements in place where he doesn't expect someone to work for peanuts, you know, 12 hours a day. And I think it's going to put pressure on other Democratic campaigns to follow. I know at least one other has talked about starting a union. I think those are still in the works. So I, I, I think that this is a real moment for those campaign workers who have previously worked in some pretty terrible conditions, even if it was for something or someone they really believed in. It's all going to start heating up pretty soon. We got a lot of people in there. That first debate is going to be by NBC News in Miami, June 26th and 27th. So we'll start seeing people really differentiate themselves and, and probably really start pulling ahead even more there. So it's uh, all happening at the end of next month. So heating up quickly. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.